Hi, I'm Chris Sprouse, Speaker of the Florida House and former prosecutor. From policy briefs to white papers, court cases to brutal police records, no matter my role, reading has been a central part of my mission to defend American values. But this isn't just my job. Reading books is a personal passion, and getting to know the authors behind the ideas on the page is one of my favorite pastimes. The Red, White, and Blue podcast is now in session. Welcome back to the podcast, listeners. Today, we're talking to one of my great friends, Dr. Jack Davis, who's the author of the Pulitzer Prize-winning book, The Gulf, The Making of an American Sea. It's a biography of the Gulf of Mexico, one of our great treasures here in the state of Florida and on the Gulf Coast. Dr. Jack Davis is a professor of history at the University of Florida. He's written 10 other books, many of which are about environmental history in the state of Florida. He's a winner of the 2018 Pulitzer Prize for History, the 2017 Kirkus Prize for Nonfiction, and a semifinalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award for Nonfiction. Please join me now for my interview with Dr. Jack Davis. Jack, thanks for being with us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Awesome. It's great, great to have you. Of course, I, as I mentioned on the intro, you know, Pulitzer Prize winning author of The Gulf, The Making of American Sea. Um, I like to mention that you got some really uh, close connections to Pinellas County, which of course is, is close to my heart. So uh, before we get into the book, Jack, tell me about uh, kind of you and your, your kind of educational background, particularly because, you know, it relates so closely here to the state of Florida. Well, I, I grew up in Florida. Uh, my family moved to Florida when I was, I think, about 10 years old. And we, uh, we first lived on the Florida Panhandle in, the, in Fort Walton Beach and then moved down to the Tampa Bay area when I was in what was then known as junior high school. And uh, so I'm, you know, I'm educated in the Florida public schools. I went to the University of South Florida for a bachelor's and a master's degree, and then went on to Brandeis University in Massachusetts for a doctorate in, in history. And I taught at, at Eckerd College, was the, the, my fir- very first job in St. Pete, just coincidentally, and was there for three years before, before going to University of Alabama at Birmingham, and then um, took a job, uh, was offered a job at University of Florida in 2003, and I was uh, eager to come back to Florida and, and temp- come to a great university, a great university system. Yeah, no doubt. Num- number one ranked U.S. News and World Report. We're what, fourth or fifth year running now? We're, we're doing pretty, not so well in football this year, but... Uh. <laughs> can't, can't win them all. Well, obviously, yeah. you've, you've got a close story to Florida, a close story to, to Tampa Bay and to Pinellas County, which, of course, you know, I like to remind people in Pinellas County, we're surrounded on three sides by, by water, as is the state of Florida. And, and, of course, you know, surrounded by the Gulf and the Gulf of Mexico. And you write this truly amazing book, um, certainly one of the best books where I, I've, I've read where you're mixing, you know, science with a narrative of, as you and I've talked about in the past, you know, mixing, um, you know, the science and with the humanities to talk about something in a really, really human way. So you write what's, what amounts to a biography on the Gulf of Mexico, which seems like a novel thing for, for somebody to do. So tell me, tell me why you did it. What story was it that you were trying to tell? I like that you call it a biography because that's how I uh, conceived this this project from from the very beginning, and uh, I had written a, a previous book. Um, the book before this one was a dual biography of Marjorie Stoneman Douglas and the Everglades, and and from that book I learned that indeed you can write a biography of a place, and I uh, and nobody had written a biography, if you will, or history of the Gulf of Mexico, and so I saw saw a need there, and having grown up on the Gulf, both in the Panhandle and down in the you know Pinellas County and the Tampa Bay area. Uh, I had this, you know, intimate relationship with this, this sea, and I felt an imperative to, um, to understand it 
um, in a way that nobody else has understood it, at least historically. Also, I felt as though that disasters such as Hurricane Katrina uh, and the, the Gulf oil spill had, had robbed the Gulf of its true identity. And I knew that the Gulf was more than just, you know, this oil sump or, uh, or a hurricane alley that there, as you know, having grown up on the Gulf too, that there's something very special about the Gulf and it deserved to have its story told in, in full. And, uh, and it, it was a real labor of love to, to write this book. And I, I didn't find it difficult any, anywhere along the way. I mean, obviously writing is strenuous. It's, it's time consuming. Uh, it, it, can, it can be tedious. But I, I absolutely loved getting up every morning to, to, to write this book and to, write, to tell the Gulf story. Well, and you got a, a great perspective having, you know, growing up around the Gulf. I, I Look, I feel that way. I've got, you and I've talked about this before. I've got two little boys and we spend a lot of our recreation time, you know, enjoying the Gulf. And I think what you've done here is really kind of create a legacy, particularly for Floridians, just because I think it's close to our heart, about, about the Gulf, what its history is, what it means to live around the Gulf and what it's done, not just for Florida or for Texas, uh, or Louisiana, but for the country as a whole, you know, there's this great line um, that I loved when you started talking about certainly the Native Americans were here, the Calusa Indians, which you do a great job of talking about in the book. But you have this great line where you say, you know, the Spanish found the Gulf, the French found the connection in the Gulf to the Mississippi River, the British chartered the Gulf. In the 19th century, the Americans began to control, you know, commerce and fishing in the Gulf of Mexico. It's just a great kind of snapshot of this long period of time in history um, in a biography of the Gulf of Mexico. As you were looking through those periods of time, really in, in grave detail, was there a particular period of time in the Gulf's history that you found particularly fascinating? Oh, that's a that's a tough question. I have to say that no offense to the Spanish and the French and the British, uh, and certainly not the indigenous peoples. I, the Calusa were absolutely fascinating, right? Writing about them. These are, uh, these are people who were uh, sedent, uh, sedentary culture who didn't rely on agriculture. Everything uh, came to them from the Gulf of Mexico. They didn't have to plant food. They didn't have to hunt land animals. And they took 95% of their protein from, from the Gulf of Mexico, which speaks to the, uh, the, the biological wealth of the estuarine environment that the Gulf of Mexico is. But the American period is just fascinating there. You know, I like to refer to my human subjects in the story in, in, in the, in the ghost biography as, um, as characters, because, um, because they're just fascinating individuals all, all around the Gulf of of Mexico, Uh, whether it's, uh, you know, a a New Orleans weatherman or a Mississippi artist or a Florida fisherman, the oyster cultures along the Gulf of Mexico. It was just all fascinating to me. Uh, I, again, I get up in the morning or in the wee hours in the morning and start writing. And it was never hard getting out of bed to do that because uh, I knew there would always be something fun and interesting to write about the, uh, that, that day. Sort of like the, you know, the Gulf's revealing itself to you over a period of time. That's exactly right. And that's how I, I approached this. I didn't start with a rigid outline like a lot of people do with nonfiction books and, and follow that outline like you would a, you know, a traffic cop at an intersection. I, I had these rough outlines and I wanted the Gulf, as you said, to reveal itself to me. And I wanted the history to tell me how it wanted to be written. Uh, and so consequently, there, there were these surprises uh, that came along, new people that cropped up who I wasn't aware of, uh, you know, a, a sort of a, a, a turn in the plot, if you will, a twist in the plot that I wasn't expecting. And it just made it so fun to write about. You talked about, you know, uh, your human subjects and fishing. You got a chapter in the book called The Fishy Sea. 
uh, where you really talk about fishing and, and really how the, the role that fishing has played in, in the Gulf's history, but also kind of segueing into, you know, tourism and really our first tourism wasn't, wasn't the beaches. It wasn't Disney, you know, it was fishing. So tell us a little bit about kind of that history about fishing here in the Gulf of Mexico, how, how that got started and what really kind of caught fire. Like why, why do people from throughout the country, uh, you know, flock to the Gulf of Mexico to fish? Well, the fishing was really good. <laughs> and, you know, we're talking the 19th century when the, the first tourists are starting to come to Florida and they're coming to, as you said, to, to fish and uh, because the fishing is good. But there's a particular fish that they really wanted to catch uh, because they knew it would be this fantastic fighting fish. And nobody had figured out to, how to hook this fish uh, until 1885 when an architect from New York uh, did so for the first time down by Sanibel. And of course that fish is a tarpon. And once he figured out how to do it and he let others know through Forest and Stream Magazine and elsewhere, it just set the, the fishing, sport fishing community on fire, not just in the US, but you know, and the people were coming from the British Isles to, to Florida. And to go from New York to the Fort Myers area back then in the late 19th century, it was a three, four day travel. And, but people did it, men and women, uh, and they, they, uh, they just loved it. And both on this side of the Gulf and, and, and Texas as well. And Texans always said, our, our, our tarpon are, are bigger. <laughs> and of course, Texans always say that about everything right. in Texas, right? <laughs> they, they always like to say that. Although, if I recall, you may have mentioned this in the book, was it in the 19, it was the 1970s, I think it was sort of like the golden era, but you had all those, those world record breaking tarpon were caught in Citrus County in Crystal River back in the 70s on the fly, uh, which I thought was a kind of a neat part of Florida's history. Yes, yes. The, the fishing has attracted so many. I mean, Ted Williams wrote a book on tarpon fishing because he loved uh, to come to Florida to fish, you know, during spring training and then and then uh, and then after, you know, between seasons. And uh, so there were, you know, there are famous architects, there are famous writers, painters who, who came to, to Florida fish because it uh, to fish because it was so good. You have this really and I this really interesting conversation in the in the part of the fishing chapters of the book about this sort of tension between commercial fishing, which is obviously wildly important to the Gulf and to the United States is, you know, all the, the fish that are consumed across the country from the Gulf uh, between the, you know, the commercial fishing industry and the recreational boating industry. And you talk about the net ban um, that was put in place by the Florida legislature to, to stop some of the netting that was happening in commercial fishing. And I think you give this a really like honest assessment of that conversation back and forth. So talk to us about that. Cause I think it's a, it's a big part of certainly the history of both commercial and recreational uh, boating in the state of Florida. Yes, it is. I mean, I, I think there has always been this long been this tension between commercial uh, fishing and, and sport fishing, uh, not not just in Florida, uh, you know, every, everywhere. And and often the sport fishers are accused of commercial fishers of you know, over harvesting and, and spoiling their sport. And that was what was happening in, in Florida in the late uh, 20th century. And the gillnet ban was supported by a statewide referendum by some 70% of the, the voters, uh, which uh, unfortunately put a, a lot of uh, multi-generation fishing families out of business. But the, the, the fishermen that I interviewed admitted that, look, you know, trying to get fishermen, commercial fishermen together to, to lobby is like trying to herd cats. And you know, the, the, the recreational community was much organized, uh, had uh, uh, better money backing and, uh, and had, a, had a strong argument. 
But I think in the end, the way I interpret it in the book and others have as well is um, I don't think any one group is at, at fault here. Um, you know, our estuarine environments were um, in decline, actually coming back, starting to come back in the 90s, but they'd been inclined in decline for a number of years because of polluted waters and uh, whether it was wastewater or industrial pollution. But with the 1972 Clean Water Act, we started bringing those estuarine environments back to life and just hadn't quite gotten there in, by the 1990s to make enough room for commercial fishing and, and, and sport fishing. Also, and let me say real quickly that, you know, Cedar Key was one of those places that was hard hit with the gillnet ban, but the state stepped in, so did the University of Florida, uh, to create a, an aquaculture uh, economy there that has, more, has been more economically beneficial to the Cedar Key area than commercial fishing was. Plus, it, it compelled Cedar Key and other areas to, to clean up the waters because oysters and clams are, are filter feeders, but they can only take so much pollution. And so we've gotten you know, a cleaner water. And it's been win-win in, in Cedar Key, cleaner water and in a stronger economy uh, in those post-Gilnet years. Well, that's that's great to hear. And, you know, as you know, uh, you know, it's been kind of a focal point of the legislature to continue to invest in aquaculture research as a way to, you know, um, to make sure we're harvesting fish organically, to make sure we're being able to kind of continue the the greatness that is the Gulf of Mexico, and what we've done here in Florida, whether that's the University of Florida or places like Moat Marine, which is doing great research around aquaculture. Um, so that continues to be, you know, a priority for us. Look, in those fishing years, you know, they even got the, the president, right? They got Teddy Roosevelt to come down and do some tarpon fishing. And um, I think that, you know, he visited while fishing at one point, you know, visited Tarpon Springs, which of course is where, where I'm from, where I was raised. And you talk a little bit about Tarpon Springs in the book, which of course is in Pinellas County, uh, is a Gulf, you know, Gulf town, which had a, a large migration of Greek population around the sponge industry. So talk about kind of the significance and uniqueness, I think, because you have a cultural uniqueness of, you know, Greek immigrants coming to the state of Florida, settling in Tarpon Springs um, around something that they had a great familiarity with, which is the sponge industry. They did have uh, a great awareness of and familiarity with the sponge industry, uh, which before Tarpon Springs, the, the home base for the sponge in industry in Florida was, uh, was really uh, Key West. But then uh, a huge uh, sponge bed was discovered off the, you know, further up in the Gulf, almost directly off the offshore from uh, Tarpon Springs. And those who had been engaged in the seafood and sponge industry in Tarpon Springs in the late 19th century uh, hatched a plan to go to Greece and, and recruit some, some real sponge fishermen. And they did. They brought their families, brought their, and they brought their, their boats, or at least their, their style of a sponge fishing boat. And um, uh, Tarpon Springs uh, became, a, at one time, perhaps the capital of sponge fishing for, for a period uh, in the world, or at least one of the, you know, the premier sponge fishing villages in the world. Uh, unfortunately, um, a severe red tide uh, off the coast in 1947 did considerable damage to the, the sponge beds. And uh, sponge fishing hasn't been uh, the same ever since. But enterprising folks in Tarpon Springs uh, now knew how to turn uh, sponge fishing into a tourist uh, trade. And uh, so, and it is, I mean, it's even today, Tarpon is very much a Greek community. The Greek culture there is very considerable and very much a, a part of the charm of, of, of Tarpon Springs and the cultural diversity of the state too. 
I thought it was fascinating. And I know you know about this, but in the, because you mentioned 1947 with the bad red tide, the sponge industry, but prior to that, right prior to that during World War II, uh, they were using a lot of the sponges harvested from Tarpon Springs inside the planes and the cockpits of fighter planes as a natural flame retardant during the war, which was kind of a cool, you know, Tarpon Springs doing their part for the war effort. You know, so you talk about, you know, whether it's, you know, fishing, uh, the history of, of kind of how, uh, you know, the tarpon really caught fire across the country, whether it's Teddy Roosevelt or businessmen from the Northeast coming down to begin that. Um, you, you talk about how there's a bit of transition from the tourism of just fishing to the tourism of fishing and going to the beach and sort of the, the importance that the beach began to play in, in Florida's history and, and our tourism industry. So talk a little about about kind of where you think that started, um, you know, people flocking to Florida's beaches. Yeah, well, what happens is when people, men and women are coming to Florida to tarpon fish. Uh, of course, they're not spending all their time on tarpon fishing. They might come down for a couple of weeks and um, they discover the beaches and they discover how beautiful these beaches are. Beach going had become uh, a bit of a trend in the Northeast uh, by the late 19th century, um, but not yet, had not yet quite caught on in in, in the South. But once people realize that we have these beautiful white quartz beaches that are courtesy of nature, by the way, as I point out in the book, courtesy of the Appalachian Mountains, because it's the quartz is, has washed down over the eons from the Appalachian Mountains and, and created the, these places we love to go barefoot on and uh, love to lie on and um, just, if you will, frolic and play. And people early in the late, in the late 19th century and early 20th century, are enjoying the beaches, but those tarpon fishing, the other thing that tarpon fishing does is to draw the, the sport fishing crowd, uh, entrepreneurs start building inns or lodges uh, and it, virtually every other one's named tarpon Inn, you know, all around the go. And so this, this locates uh, the tourist uh, beachside and uh, the beaches are, the sunsets are irresistible um, uh, in, in, on the Gulf of Mexico, or at least our side of the Gulf of Mexico. You know, one of the things, you know, we started talking about the, the mixture of the science and the humanities, and you talk a lot in the book about how art has impacted, uh, whether that's in, you know, uh, art through drawings or paintings or art through writers like John McDonald, who wrote, you know, was one of the original crime noir novelists who has that character, Travis McGee, who's kind of a beach bum who lives on a, off a boat in Fort Lauderdale. But he writes a lot about Florida's environment um, during the course of, of that narrative. So talk a little about the, the role that, you know, art has played in the history of the Gulf. Well, John D. McDonald, and unfortunately, uh, you know, at, at University of Florida, my students have never heard of John D. McDonald, which I, which I think is a shame. And, in fa in uh, fairness to your students, I, I, I'm embarrassed to admit that I did not hear about him until I read your book. And I think I'm like probably 12 books into that series now, but but I didn't know about it until you wrote about it. So I'm glad you yeah, did. Yeah, he's, he's just, his books are so wonderful. And he inspired people like Carl Heisen and... Um, uh, so he lived in Sarasota and uh, right on the Gulf and saw those Gulf sunsets and uh, understood them, uh, appreciated them. And he loved to fish, too, as I point out in the book. And um, and so he lived in uh, Sarasota in the 50s, 60s and the, in the 70s and also wrote what many people consider the, the first environmental or ecological novel in which he tells the story of a group of, of people in a fictitious Gulf side community who are trying to stop a dredge and fill project um, because they know that will um, affect the estuarine environment. 
And uh, John D. McDonald himself was uh, something of an activist in the Sarasota region. He saw the decline of the bays around Sarasota and Tampa Bay and uh, really, really wanted to restore the ecological or the biological wealth that he'd known when he first moved to Sarasota in the 1950s. And the people of Florida caught on, uh, not solely because of him, but because of what was happening outside their back doors. But, you know, there's a there's a story to celebrate there. You know, here you have uh, a writer who is hugely popular on 72 million copies. I think his books have sold uh, who's raising awareness and uh, but also um, people, uh, people pitching in at all levels from elected officials, businesses, volunteers. Uh, you know, the average citizen uh, pitching in to restore the health of these uh, these beautiful waters that we live beside. And we succeeded. I, I think it's that, it's that old saying, right? Life imitates art, you know? So I think if, if art is, is talking about things that are important to people and it catches on, which you have done um, in, in writing the Gulf. I mean, I think that's part of the legacy of, of making sure. And, you know, here we are, we've talked about beaches. We've talked about you know, coastlines and the erosion of beaches and mangroves, things like that. You know, last year, the Florida legislature put in $100 million to make sure we're restoring beaches and making sure we're taking care of the beaches. Um, you and I, Jack, have talked at length um, about what we did in resiliency and planning for flooding and sea level rise across the state, probably the largest, you know, effort in the country. Um, and, and in fairness, uh, we probably have more motivation than the rest of the country being surrounded by water, including the Gulf of Mexico. So, you know, you see these things happening in the state. Are you, you know, having addressed and, and looked at the history of the Gulf and the challenges and the degradation of estuaries and fisheries? You know, are you optimistic about the future? I am optimistic about the future for the reasons that you just stated. Um, and we have a very good universities in in the state who, with scholars, you know, scientists and humanists who uh, examine Florida and think about the future uh, and uh, think about restoration. And you know, again, dealing with the challenges of the 21st century, um, we are, we're truly leaders in that regard. And that's something to be, to be proud of. Um, we also, virtually every body of water around um, Florida has one or two or three um, conservation groups that are work to protect those bodies of water and are highly successful. I also, I've been teaching from baby boomers to Gen Zs and Gen Zs give me um, a, a tremendous optimism for the future because uh, I think they're very much aware and, um, and they want a, a secure quality of life for themselves in the future. And they link that quality of life to a, to a healthy environment, in, including of course our, our coastlines. It's interesting to see too how the you know particularly like recreational fishermen have played such a I think an important role especially over the last decade of trying to protect our waterways and and really kind of putting that that human face which you talk about right uh, the human face on you know the challenges we're seeing as they talk about kind of the health of our waterways you've talked about you know again this this idea of marrying the science with the humanities to tell the story as to what's happening not in this sort of clinical setting of just science but in a very human setting. So how do we as a state, you know, continue to do that so that, you know, it's not just noise and statistics. Um, it is really a story and a narrative that we're sharing with our children to make sure that they understand the importance of Florida's environment. Yeah, it, it really is a human story, isn't it? Um, and I think if we cast it as a human story, um, then we can draw greater attention to, uh, again, these challenges in, in the 21st century. 
Um, the, the Gulf is very much a gift and uh, it, it brings uh, beauty into our lives. It's, uh, you know, it invigorates the human spirit, but it also gives us food. It moderates our climate. I think if we emphasize, continue to emphasize the, the connection between, um, you know, the environment. I mean, look, we drink the same water, we breathe in the same air as the animals do, right? And uh, we live in the same habitat. Their habitat is our, our habitat. When we foul their nest, we're fouling our nest. And, uh, and I think that's something that we need to emphasize that this is about our quality of life. Uh, who doesn't enjoy clean water? I mean, who benefits from dirty water, for instance? And who doesn't enjoy a beautiful beach? And uh, we, we, we all do. And so if, I emphasize, if we continue to emphasize the human connection to the environment uh, and use science to do that, but also humanistic stories uh, to do it, um, then, then I think we can, we can make a connection with uh, you know, a larger audience. Yeah, absolutely. I, and you, we've certainly even seen that played out here in the legislature, you know, last year with the, whether it's the beach funding or the resiliency uh, bill, the always ready bill that we did, you know, it was wildly bipartisan, you know, members of both parties from different parts of the state, inland, coastal, who say what you just said, which is, you know, who doesn't like clean water and who's going to deny that clean water and beautiful beaches aren't a huge part of Florida and what we do. Um, so it's, it's, it's wildly important. Well, speaking of a narrative, um, you know, you write this amazing book, this biography on the Gulf, uh, which I think is, is certainly a legacy for you, but I think a legacy for the state of Florida and for all states who, who live around the Gulf of Mexico or grew up on the Gulf. Um, but you're working on a new book uh, on, on the bald eagle uh, that's coming out soon. And if I understand correct, oh, we got it. We got a copy. This is, this is the galley. And uh, yeah, so it'll be out March 1st. Oh, that's great. My understanding is, you know, Florida's got a connection there uh, a little bit. So tell us about the book, why you picked the bald eagle and, and what's, can you, can you give us a, you know, a sneak peek into Florida's connection? Yeah, well, I, I wanted to write uh, a biography of a species this time. And, uh, and, but I also wanted to write an environmental story that would appeal to everybody, uh, no matter their background. And who doesn't love the bald eagle? We all love the bald eagle, right? And it's a fantastic, and it's, I also wanted to write a, a, a story that we could celebrate. And we certainly can celebrate um, uh, the, the, the bald eagle. We almost lost it in the 1960s in the lower 48, but we helped bring its population um, back to life. Also, its restoration is owing much to the bald eagle's perseverance itself. But, you know, in the past decade, the bald eagle population in bald eagle only lives in North America. And Florida has always been a premier bald eagle nesting state um, and remains so. And uh, the population, uh, bald eagle population in North America has quadrupled in the last decade um, because we've cleaned up its habitat, you know, with the Clean Water Act and everybody pitching in and cleaning up our own habitat. Uh, and Florida played an important role in bald eagle history in, in, in a couple of ways. One man by the name of Charles Burley, a retired banker from Canada, moved to Tampa with his family in the 1930s. And he was the first person He's a banker. He's not a scientist. He's the first person to systematically ban eaglets, bald eagle eaglets. And he would climb longleaf pines, 60, 70, 80 feet pine, uh, foot pines up to their nest to ban the eaglets. He did this for 20 years until he was age 79 and, and banded 12, some 1,200 eaglets. And in doing that, we learned about the migration patterns of bald eagles, which we weren't very familiar with first, but he was also one of the first people to make a connection between birds and DDT. He's mentioned in Rachel Carson's book, Silent Spring. 
uh, phenomenal contribution. Uh, and our bald eagles were hit by, uh, unfortunately, hit by DDT by like the rest of the country, but not as bad as others. And when it came, when the federal government and state uh, governments partnered to develop restoration programs in the, uh, in, in the 1970s and 1980s, the rest of the southern states had virtually no nesting bald eagles, but Florida had, still had plenty. And so Florida eagles, they were heroes. Let me tell you, these bald eagles were heroes. They donated their eggs in the 1980s to uh, a total of 275 eggs over the course of four years uh, that were taken from their nests, incubated in Oklahoma, and then distributed. And once the hatch, the eaglets are distributed to the other southern states. So where we see bald eagles nesting in other southern states, those are descendants of Florida eagles. And the Florida eagles didn't suffer because the eggs were taken out early enough in the nesting season that the females laid another, set, another clutch of eggs. And so we didn't lose population. Um, and so when this book comes out, I want the state, I want sponsors such as um, uh, Duke Energy of Florida, who I think will join, come on board. And I want, him, I want us to uh, commission a statue uh, to put up a Paynes Prairie State Park to celebrate the bald eagle, because it was this part of Florida, north central Florida, where most of those eggs came from. I think the birds deserve celebration j just as we do. I absolutely love that story. You know, Texas can have big fish, but what I hear you saying is Florida saved the bald eagle. In the Southern States, we absolutely did. Yeah. Well, that's cool. I, I, uh, I told you I had two little boys, but you know, they, we saw a bald eagle one day and I, they said, daddy, look, it's America. <laughs> that's what they, right. It absolutely is. Uh, you know, nature, America is, and that's what's distinguished us from the European countries, which was our natural endowments that they didn't have, that they were so envious of. Uh, it was, it was central to our national identity. Uh, and I think still remains so. And, you know, when I was growing up on Tampa Bay in the seventies, never saw a bald eagle. Um, they weren't around, but now you see them everywhere. And, uh, uh, and they're just in there. They are the most popular wildlife cams in the world, the bald eagle nest cams. Well, I am super excited to read, uh, read your book and I'm going to encourage other people to do that too. Uh, I, you know, I'd be remiss, uh, Jack, if I didn't end this by saying thank you for, for writing the book. I think it's, you know, it's important as you write about the Gulf and Florida's history, yesterday, you understand the impact that you're having on Florida tomorrow, the work that we did last year on beaches and resiliency and flooding uh, and looking at Florida's estuaries. You know, a lot of that had to do with the, the great work that you've done about telling the story of our past so that we understand that we need you know, we're responsible for charting its future. So, so thank you for that. Uh, I appreciate it. Looking forward to reading your next book on the bald eagle. And uh, thanks so much for joining us today. My pleasure, and thank you for what you're doing for Florida and, and Tallahassee these days. Thank you.